Annie, are you okay, or is it a hard knock life on Tatooine? This week on the Nerd by Word podcast, we try to fix the Phantom Menace. A new episode starts right now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into another episode of the Nerd by Word podcast. Um, we're starting you off, as always, with our nerd news segment. Dave, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, so former DC co-publisher Dan DiDio uh, gave a big interview to Newsarama. And in it, he talked a little bit about his career in general and some of the decisions he had to make as uh, editor-in-chief and then co-publisher. And two of the characters that came up in particular in his talk... Uh, were Wally West's Flash and Dick Grayson's Nightwing. Uh, About Wally West, he said, uh, and I'm quoting here, For me, Wally West was a core concept issue. My problem with Wally was that his origin was always dependent on his uncle and previous Flash, Barry Allen. He was never his own character. He was always going to be subservient to Barry in some way because his origin was determined by Barry. There was always a Flash in front of him, and his powers were because of him. I always felt as a true Flash, and if we were trying to get to the simplest form with regards to media and things like that, we'd have to go back to Barry. Uh, About Dick Grayson, he said, and again I quote, With Dick Grayson, and this is the same with Wally, people loved them because they aged with them. So they feel this affinity that these guys have grown up with them. The problem is that much like Batman and Superman, now Dick Grayson and Wally West have to stop aging because they're going to pass their mentors. Dick Grayson's going to get older than Bruce Wayne at some point because Bruce doesn't age and Dick Grayson's going to be the older guy if he does keep growing up. Therefore, those things constantly force the reboots that we're faced with because it creates these log jams and these multiple interpretations of characters all sharing the same name. Now, DiDio famously wanted to kill off Dick Grayson during the Infinite Crisis event several years ago. And I think uh, this whole attitude is actually really regrettable in a lot of ways. Uh, DC has done a great job with the notion of legacy. Uh, That is a really big, important part of the DC brand. Uh, Heroes pass away, new heroes rise and take their place. And Dick Grayson and Wally West are just two examples of that. Uh, It gave much of DC a sense of development, a sense of forward momentum. Things changed, developed, teen sidekicks grew up and struck out on their own. Saying that uh, characters have no merit because they are dependent or linked to other characters is just nonsense. Harley Quinn, for example, is linked to the Joker, and she certainly has uh, not been stopped from starring in two different movies at this point. Supergirl is linked to Superman, but that hasn't stopped her from getting her own movie and TV series. Uh, It's just an odd thing to say for DC Comics co-publisher because there's a whole class of characters on the roster that are always intrinsically linked to other characters. Wally West uh, in particular was the Flash when I got into comic books. Kyle Rayner was the Green Lantern. Going back to what DC perceives as the quote-unquote original characters, Barry and Hal Jordan, was quite jarring to me. I'll go even further and say that those aren't even the originals. If you go back further, the original Flash is Jay Garrick and the original Green Lantern is Alan Scott. The link 
that Barry and Hal shares with those characters doesn't make them any less uh, interesting characters. So when I read this interview, I was just troubled because it felt like the deal was discounting legacy and character growth in, in comic books. Chris, what do you think about this? Yeah, this is, you know, really, really odd for me as a casual DC fan. And we've touched on this on, on previous episodes um, when we talked about um, sticking to the source material and stuff. And, and I think we both kind of landed on we, we just want a good story. And there are so many different iterations of, of different characters under the same name in both DC and Marvel and other publishers as well. You have, you know, I love Peter Parker and I love Miles Morales. I love them both for what they both bring to the, the moniker and the name of Spider-Man. It's for that character. In my, my limited experience, uh, experiment, uh, excuse me, experience with, with Hal Jordan as Green Lantern, and as Jon Stewart as Green Lantern, I've enjoyed both. You know, they're separate, but I enjoy both of them. So, um, and I remember Kevin Smith, I believe it was, you know, when all of this Miles Morales uh, news first came out. Um, and, and all the backlash to people who, who were angry about it. Um, he And he said, uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, the stories that you love, of Peter, Peter Parker being a white guy from Queens, those aren't going away. Just because we're telling a different story doesn't mean that yours are all of a sudden done you know the more the merrier i think in my opinion and 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 just as a casual dc fan now a quick question the the flash that is in like the the popular animated series of like justice league and justice league unlimited is that wally west that is wally west that is wally west so yeah like i i've been exposed to that character and i thoroughly enjoyed that but again, as a casual DC fan, um, Nightwing was a very interesting character for me when I was playing the Arkham games. And I was like, oh, snap. And like, then I had to do like a deep dive on who Nightwing was. And then just from like a head honcho and someone who's in like, you know, w- w- alongside Jim Lee as co-publisher to be like, you know what? I don't like these characters. And I think we have to go back to the quote unquote status quo and go back to the way things were and in the good old days, I really think that's, as you said, a regrettable thing to return to. Yeah, I totally agree. Nightwing in particular has been always one of my favorite characters. I'm a huge fan of Dick Grayson's in all his iterations. In fact, uh, when we get to the nerd commendations, we'll, we'll probably be talking about Dick Grayson a little more. So it, it's just troubling because there's so many good characters on the DC Comics roster and characters that lend themselves to, to different kinds of storytelling. And, and so to just dismiss those characters as unimportant uh, is just, it, I find it short-sighted, ultimately. That's exactly the, the term that I would use, simply because Barry, in his, you know, as you proved, it was not the case, he was not the first Flash, but because he's tied to Barry Allen, that doesn't mean that you can't tell good stories with him. You're minimalizing yourself, you're painting yourself into a corner, and, you know, and... Um, I can see what he's saying with Dick Grayson and, and aging and whatever, but you can stop that. Like, you know, Marvel has a, a sliding timescale as well. Flash Thompson originally fought in the Vietnam War, and then it was kind of retconned into uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, one of the two, um, in the 2000s. So, I mean, you have, as, as the co-publisher, you have pretty much the final say on that. So, when you say that Dick Grayson has to die because, you know, he can't grow up anymore, then 
that's because you said he can't grow up anymore. I did see part of the interview where he said that he wanted a worthwhile death in Infinite Crisis, similar to, I believe it was Barry Allen that died on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yes. So he wanted like a meaningful sacrifice. So I agree with that. But the notion that, um, and I could vibe with that, but the notion that he can't continue to be uh, a prominent character in your, in your publishing line because he can't grow up, you're limiting yourself story-wise. Yes, totally. I agree with that. And I will say that uh, Jeff Johns, who wrote Infinite Crisis, uh, did come up with a meaningful death in that series. Spoilers for a really old miniseries, but ultimately it was... Um, Connell Superboy, who who was sacrificed uh, as part of that story, and kind of filled that need, uh, that that niche in that particular story. Yeah. So, uh, long story short, just a, a regrettable attitude from a guy who used to be in charge of some of my all-time favorite characters. Chris, what is your big news story for this week? Well, uh, we're sticking with DC. Uh, we're doing an all C, uh, DC nerd news segment this week. Michael Keaton is in the very, very early talks to return as Batman in the film universe. This was broken um, by Boris Kidd of Hollywood Reporter. Um, he is being rumored for um, initially for the Flash film that is set to start filming in 2021 and uh, also rumored for other DCEU films. Early reports and rumors have him being a, serving as a Nick Fury type character, kind of a recruiter, a la kind of what Bruce Wayne was doing in Justice League, but to, you know, hopefully to a much more extensive unit, uh, you know, with being multiple films. Um, I did see that uh, Batgirl is um, one of the planned films for the future as well. So that'd be an interesting thing. And then, you know, as, as we're all cooped up in quarantine still, you know, this just unleashed a bunch of fan theories across the internet. It, it really made the the nerd internet uh, explode over the past couple of days. So people are thinking, Flashpoint, is he going to be Thomas Wayne? Is he going to be Bruce Wayne from another universe? Is this a multiverse situation? Um, now the Flash is, the Flash film is, uh, starring Ezra Miller, is um, rumored to be featuring not only time travel but also uh multiverse type deals um and then you know i even saw some speculation as to a batman beyond where bruce wayne is an older uh patriarch character and you know bringing in a new uh character to to wear the cape and cowl so dave what do you think about this i'm really of two minds about this story on the one hand i adore michael keaton batman and i would love to see him reprise that role on the other hand, I don't think a Flash movie is the right place for it. Can we make a Flash movie that doesn't need other superheroes to carry it? Can we maybe just do that period? Uh, with Spider-Man, for example, we had the same situation with Iron Man. Why do we feel the need uh, to prop up what Hollywood perceives as lesser heroes with bigger star power or bigger heroes? Uh, I think Iron Man proved... The original Iron Man movie proved pretty conclusively that a character that was obscure to some extent to general audiences can be used to make a fantastic movie. And I'm troubled that they feel the need to prop up this Flash movie with, with a cameo, basically, of, of a Michael Keaton Batman. Michael Keaton should totally return to the role of Batman, but in the logical place to do so, which would be a Batman Beyond movie. A Batman Beyond movie with Michael Keaton as an older Bruce Wayne would be fantastic 
fantastic. I think Keaton would do a great job with this old, cranky Bruce Wayne who's been around the block and his body is worn out and he just can't do the fighting anymore himself. It would be a fantastic performance, and it would focus on a story where that makes sense. It feels like Warner Brothers is, just keeps trying to make the Flash into something he's not. We mentioned in a previous episode how Justice League tried to Peter Parker him, basically. And now it seems they're trying to Batman beyond him. Just let the Flash be the Flash. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you you said Iron Man is an obscure character. I'll even go even more recently, and in the same universe of films, with Aquaman. You have a character who was the butt of so many jokes, even within the nerd community for so many years... And now the more I sit and think about that film and postulate on it, it has narrowly, I believe, edged Shazam as my favorite DCEU film. Like, it's just fantastic in the way they've done that. Why not do the same for Flash? You don't need cameos from other people. The Flash is a fantastic character. Even with my limited exposure to him, I've seen the first two seasons, as I previously stated, on on the series. Um, And then, you know, I saw some Justice League and, and Unlimited. And I thoroughly enjoy the character. He's funny, you know, um, He's he's got heart. This is a wonderful character in and of himself. And if you can do that with Aquaman, why in the world can you not do that with Flash? And the Flash has a fantastically deep mythology too, you know, the notion of the Speed Force and his relationship to the Speed Force and where, where his speed comes from and how he relates to it. Uh, and the fact that he can, in fact, time travel. I remember when there were first rumors going around, even before Justice League, before Ezra Miller's casting, about a Flash movie. And I even want to say Ryan Reynolds was like in the running for that at some point, or rumor to be attached. But there were some really interesting things that people were saying about that iteration of the movie, about how fast he would move as, as the movie progresses, and, you know, the notion of arriving before you left and suddenly there's multiple flashes in the same scene and time manipulation there's so many things so many directions that you could take a flash movie in why does it have to be oh we better put batman in this it reminds me of the animated movies that dc was doing for a little while uh where they would try to do something new oh let's let's make a john constantine but wait we have to have batman guest star in it oh let's make a suicide squad cartoon oh but wait Let's have Batman guest star in it. It's like, just put Batman in there and, and it'll sell. And that is the wrong attitude. Make a quality product. Tell a good story. Then it will sell. Yeah, well, just look what you've been able to do with the CW-verse. You know, with quote-unquote minor characters like The Flash and Arrow and you know the Legends of Tomorrow Squad and Supergirl. All these minor characters, and that's been well-received critically. Um, it's... You know, a lot of it is not for my personal taste. Um, there, there are parts of it that I just don't vibe with and don't find entertaining. But it's been highly successful. So if you can do that on the small screen, just imagine what you could do with a larger budget and, and Hollywood behind it. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, here's hoping that it'll work. I'd love to see Michael Keaton uh, reprise Batman and do a really good job with it. I think it'll be fantastic. Just sad that it has to be in a Flash movie of all places. Yep, same here. Um, That wraps up our nerd news segment. When we return from our first break, we're going to fix the Phantom Menace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back here on the Nerd by Word podcast. And this week, we are 
enjoying our first episode, enjoying maybe too much of a stretch, but we are starting our first um, in a three-episode series on how to fix the Star Wars prequels. So, logically, we're starting with episode one, The Phantom Menace. We each came up with uh, three big strategies, and that's initially what we started with. We wanted three quick fixes, big fixes to the film. But then, you know, when you start watching The Phantom Menace... We were like, we need we need more than just three. So we each came up with our big three like we usually do. And then we have a lightning round, just quick little minor things. Dave, first on your big three fixes for episode one, The Phantom Menace. Well, it has to be Anakin Skywalker, ultimately, to me. So rewatching Phantom Menace was a weird experience. I remember seeing this in the theater and really wanting to love it. I mean, just trying to will myself to love this movie. I went back to the theater three times and rewatched it. It's like, this must be a good movie. I must be missing something. This this sinking feeling in my gut it just can't mean what I think it means, that the movie is just not very good. And the movie is just not very good. And I think a good chunk of that falls on Anakin Skywalker. I know what George Lucas was going for with this young, innocent approach. He really wanted to create a strong contrast with uh, what he would eventually become, Darth Vader. And in a way, that's smart, but it also doesn't lend itself to an interesting character. Anakin needs a complete revamp. He should be older. I would argue probably teenager, maybe 15, 16 years old. And character-wise, instead of playing this wide-eyed innocent, it would be much more entertaining for this movie for him to be more of a Han Solo type. This lovable, charming rogue. Let, let's have him be a slave. That's fine. Let's have him be the son of a single mother. Also fine. He can still love building things. He can still be a pod racer. That's all fine. Uh, but the way he is written episode one, he's just too young. He's too naive. Too innocent to be interesting. So let's pull on that string of the notion of the charming rogue. He's a slave. He had to learn to use his charm to manipulate the people around him. He's not above breaking the rules to get what he wants although he doesn't do so callously or maliciously. He's a well-meaning teenager who has grown up in really horrible circumstances, and he's had to learn to, to manipulate the world around him to at least achieve some kind of modicum of success. Because of his time growing up a slave, he hates authority, which makes sense. He doesn't like people telling him what to do. This sets up an eventual clash with his Jedi life perfectly. An older Anakin could have some actual chemistry with Padme, uh, George Lucas always said he wants his movies to rhyme, to repeat themes and even certain lines. And here there could be an echo of the Leia and Han Solo relationship. Padme, who's been raised to be a politician from the time she was very young, has to meet Anakin, a person of action, and she's somebody, somebody who debates things and considers things before taking action, and Anakin is more of a, of a doer. This is also gives us a better relationship with Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you ask me. Obi-Wan Kenobi, I think, is portrayed in the prequels as this consummate Jedi. He's a Jedi. It's what he does. It's what he lives. It's what he loves. He's a by-the-book kind of guy. Now, he is thrown in together with this teenager, a few years younger than him, who's charming, friendly, fun to be around, but will break any rule he has to to get the job done. And now you have almost a buddy cop dynamic, the by-the-book Kenobi and the loose canon Anakin. Uh, I think that would have given us a much more entertaining and much more fun uh, series of character dynamics between Anakin and the other characters in the movie. What do you think, Chris? 
Yeah, I absolutely agree, especially that last part. And I think that's kind of the dynamic that they found in the Clone Wars animated series. And that's why that was so successful and why their relationship, and we'll get to this in the later prequel episodes, was so much more believable. And the turn in episode three means more after you rewatch it, I think, after watching Clone Wars, Um, because you just don't have enough there that they give you in the three films for us to care anything about their relationship, especially when you're starting off the first film and they barely speak to one another. I totally agree. Even a couple of years, you say 15, 16, I'm saying even if he's 12 or 13, I think that makes it even a little bit more. You and I, we teach middle schoolers. We know what little buttheads 12 and 13 year old males can be. <laughs> yes. So you know, they think they know everything about the world. So, um, it really the first thing that jumps off with with his age and the problem for it for me is you and you noted this is the age difference between him and Padme and I think Natalie Portman at the time of filming was only fourteen but she looks older than her age um, and if Jake Lloyd was ten he looks much younger than that and it makes those scenes very uncomfortable for me um, the are you an angel scene is super cringy. So if you make him 12 or 13, I think that you would really gain a lot with that and their relationship and how that develops. It doesn't come out of nowhere, you know, in episode two. And then I also think like his little snarky one-liners, whether they're given in in English or in Huddies, will land a little bit better. When he's talking smack to Sebulba, if he's a 12 or 13-year-old kid, I'm buying that a little bit more than I am just this little 8-year-old kid. Like, what 8-year-old talks like that to a grown adult pod racer? That, so, you know, and then that pod racing dynamic changes a little bit, and it's not quite as odd to have a small child amongst, assumingly, adult aliens as well. Yes, yes, I agree. George Lucas seemed to really want to go for certain things, uh, in episode two and three, but refused to lay any kind of foundation of, for it in in episode one, and I think that's a lot of the problem. All the characters seem so so static. You know, they're not making any real choices. They're not really pushing things forward. It's like everything seems to be happening to them rather than them taking direct action to change the situation. And Anakin definitely is the character. Everything just seems to happen to in this movie, you know, like, oh, I happen to be hiding in a, in this fighter, you know, and I happen to be pulled up into a space battle, and I just so happen to blow up this control station. It's, it's, there's very little agency in the character, and I think portraying him as a little older, and, and a little, uh, little, um, smart aleck, I think, would be a, a lot of fun. So, Chris, what do you think? What is your big, uh, first change that we need to make to The Phantom Menace? My first thing, it's all in the title, The Phantom Menace. And if I read that correctly, that is supposed to refer to the primary villain, quote unquote primary, of this film, Darth Maul. I mean, he is in three or four scenes. He talks twice. Leading up to this film, if there's one thing I remember about the anticipation for this film, other than being excited for a Star Wars movie, was like how iconic his look was, his uh his face his skin like the black and the red was so dynamic and passionate and then he had horns coming out of the top of his head like that was cool there were kids walking around elementary school with 
their faces painted like Darth Maul. And then for you to show up and he's only in two or three scenes and he's one of the few strengths of this film, why would you not have more of him? And I feel like Star Wars as a whole, I don't know, like they doubled down on that. Um, I feel in the sequel trilogy, and maybe we'll get to that in a future episode, but Captain Phasma looks so cool. She had this, you know, chrome uh, Stormtrooper outfit. She had this dramatic cape, and it was Gwendolyn Christie. You love Game of Thrones? Well, here's Brienne of Tarth in a Stormtrooper outfit. And then she was even less utilized. And I even saw a tweet a couple of weeks back after the finale of, of... the final season of Clone Wars, and it was like, who would have thought in 1999 that Darth Maul would be one of the most thought out and planned out characters in all of Star Wars? Um, and that's because they took 20 years of, you know, secondary animated series just to flesh his character out because they did such a ridiculous job and such an underservice here in in episode one so i need more mall more mall you know what i totally agree with you um you know it's really sad that we keep bringing up the clone wars in this because you know it's fantastic star wars absolutely but on the other hand you should not have to go to what is in essence spin-off media to get the full story Uh, that is i think one of the problems that the um the sequel trilogy has been doing as well. Now we're just going to throw this into uh, a book or, you know, a Fortnite event or something. Like, like tell a complete story with the movie and then take the characters from that and the concepts you've introduced and spin that off into additional stories. But don't expect me to, to look at a half-finished story in, in the movie theaters and, and then try to go and, you know, seek out all this secondary media. Maul was... You're exactly right. Visually interesting. It was fun to watch what, what little he was on screen. The, the He made that lightsaber duel at the end. Uh, he, the way he moved, his theatricality. It's, the it's the best part of the film. Fa- fast forward to it every time. Uh, the theatricality of it, the snarling. It was, it was fantastic. I would say Maul should have been the Vader of the prequel trilogy. He should have been there till the end, or near the end anyways. I would even say that one of the things, you know, not to put the cart before the horse because we'll get to episode three eventually, but one of the things that Anakin should have had to do in order to take his place with Palpatine should have been to kill Maul, not to kill children, right? That should have been the moment, you know? So, yeah, we needed much more Maul. I am I'm totally with you. So it's such an interesting character, well fleshed out later on. There should have been more on the screen, and he should have never been killed off at the beginning of, uh, at the end of Phantom Menace. At the beginning of a trilogy, you have such a memorable villain, and then you make him disposable. That was a bad move all around. Oh, and, and that this just came to me as well. They did the same thing with Boba Fett, even as... as wonderful uh, as the original trilogy is and how much I love it, you had one of the coolest villains um, in in Boba Fett and he's eaten by a a sand monster. So like a big overgrown Venus flytrap. And knocked into it by a guy who's blind and can't even see completely by accident. Talk talk about the smell of incompetence on that whole moment. Yeah. So that's uh, my first one. Dave, what's number two on your big three? 
Okay, so this one, I don't know, might be a little uh, controversial, a bit of a hot take. We'll see how this goes. But I think one of the things you have to do to make the Phantom Menace work better is you have to get rid of Qui-Gon Jinn. I think that that character should be excised from the movie completely or uh, just basically a cameo during Jedi Council scenes or something. I don't think he is necessary in any way, shape, or form. I enjoy Liam Neeson's performances in most movies, but Qui-Gon Jinn is so superfluous in episode one. I think he actually hinders the movie because Qui-Gon's presence sidelines Obi-Wan for most of the movie. And really, in my view, the perfect starting point for this trilogy would have been a story between where, where Obi-Wan, Kenobi, and Anakin meet and become friends. And in order to do that, you cannot sideline Obi-Wan, just leave him on the ship while I go hang out with Jar Jar on Tatooine. Instead of, uh, instead of Qui-Gon Jinn, here's what I think they should have done. Negotiating with the Trade Federation should have been Obi-Wan's first solo mission as a full-fledged Jedi. He's just stopped being a Padawan, he's nervous, he's unsure of himself. This is his first mission without his master to lean on. So this provides him with an arc throughout the movie, as he gains confidence over the course of the story and builds this friendship with Anakin. I also don't like the idea that the only reason Obi-Wan decides to train Anakin is because Qui-Gon wanted to do it, and there's like this sense of loyalty. I think Obi-Wan should choose to train Anakin, not because of duty to his master, but because of the power of friendship. He wants to free Anakin from slavery and offer him a better life because he likes him, not because his master said so. And now that Anakin is a teenager, the complaints that he's too old will ring even more true, you know? So he goes to the Jedi Council and he says, okay, I've, I've picked my, my Padawan learner and it's this, this 15, 14, 16-year-old, whatever. And people say, well, he's too old. That rings a little more true than if you're talking about what is basically a 9 or 10-year-old. Yep. I would even go so far as to say that it would be an interesting twist in the story that the, the Council actually does not decide who becomes a Padawan learner. Each Jedi Knight can choose their own apprentice. They can uh, ask for advice in the choosing, but ultimately it's the Jedi Knight's choice and responsibility. When things go sideways later in the prequel trilogy, there is a much bigger responsibility on Obi-Wan, a greater sense that he has failed, not just as a teacher, but as a friend, because he was the one without Qui-Gon Jinn's ghost hovering over him or something. He's the one who actively made the choice. I'm going to take this teenager. I know he's technically too old. I know he's a rule breaker. I know he doesn't like authority. I'm going to try to give him a better life by making him a Jedi Knight. And then things go sideways, and the responsibility doesn't fall on the council who decided, okay, it's all right, it doesn't fall on a dead Qui-Gon Jinn, it fall, falls square on Obi-Wan Kenobi. And that creates a much bigger sense of drama. You have much better potential for interesting character scenes as Obi-Wan questions, where did I go wrong? How could I have made such a horrible choice? It, it just opens things up in The Phantom Menace and later a lot more if we just get rid of Qui-Gon and we focus on Obi-Wan and Anakin as the duo that basically anchors this movie. Chris, what do you think of that? Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it even, that last part that you made, it, it even opens up a really interesting dynamic in episode four and in tying to the original trilogy. 
why would Obi-Wan seclude to such a hermited lifestyle? Not only because he's watching over Luke, but because he feels like such a failure. So if you give him more more of an albatross around his neck, if you will, then I feel like that just adds to so much to something that's already so impactful. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with just about everything you said. I mean, Liam Neeson is a very talented actor and he's turned in some, some really great performances. Um, the taken movies, you know, really got my adrenaline going in my college years, but, um, and, and he, there's nothing that he particularly does poorly um, in this film, I feel, but it just creates a bunch of unnecessary things. And I even had as one of my big three more Obi-Wan, and I removed it when I saw the second point because I don't know who Ewan McGregor's chiropractor is, but if, if he is still living life to the fullest and with no permanent back issues after carrying these three films solely you're not kidding yeah you know with his with his performance then i need to know who that doctor is because i've got some back problems myself so i i think you have and again it goes back to maul one of the one of the very few strengths that you have of this film and this entire prequel series is ewan mcgregor like why would you not utilize him more why would you like part uh, you know cordon him off onto the ship for the majority of the film and then you have like I don't know, maybe I read this wrong, but like those, that awkward exchange between Qui-Gon and Shmi, like, are they into each other? Like, what is that? Like, do you want to be Anakin's daddy? Like, what is this? So you lose all of that if you just make that Obi-Wan. So yeah, I'm totally there with you. I need more Obi-Wan. If we get rid of Qui-Gon, I get more Obi-Wan. So I see that as a win-win. And I think it comes back down to the concept of of agency, of of them, uh, the characters actively doing things, choosing things, and not just stuff happening to them. So Obi-Wan doesn't so much just choose to be Anakin's teacher. It just kind of happens to him. Well, my master wanted to do it. He's dead. I guess I have to do it. The council said do it. You know, and, and when he when he chooses yep. it, that's real agency in the characters. And that, that is something that I think is sorely lacking in this movie in a lot of places. Chris, what is your next big change that you'd like to make to improve The Phantom Menace? The second thing that I listed here is the first thing I noticed right at the beginning of the film. It's the most uncomfortable thing. And it's the racist tropes that take place in this film. From the first moment that you hear the Viceroy talk, Newt Gunray speak, you can hear the racist, stereotypical Asian overtones. Jar Jar. Hey, we made it this far without talking about Jar Jar. Um, but, but you know, the racist uh, caricature of portrayal of Jar Jar. Um, and Watto as well. Not, not one to forget. Um, the heavy, stereotypical Jewish behavior towards Watto. It's really uncomfortable, and I I watched I rewatched this over a series of like three days because I just could not get through it, and I know that George Lucas himself has denied this till he's blue in the face. But if someone tells you they're offended by something, I just make it personally. You know, that's my personal philosophy. If someone says they're offended by something, then it's offensive. You know, I'm not. It's it's not there to be policing whatever. Like, if, if, if someone finds that offensive, if an Asian person comes to you and says, this is racist, then it's racist. So I just, 
I mean, I, this there's not really like a real soapbox that I could get off on on here, but um, it's just really uncomfortable, and I can't watch the whole film in one sitting as a result. That this is this is one of the toughest things about about episode one in particular. You know, I think it comes down in a lot of ways to to lazy storytelling too. Instead of trying to fully develop an interesting character that leads to Trade Federation, you fall back on some kind of stereotype to do some kind of I don't know, some kind of telegraphed shorthand or something. The same thing goes for most of the instances of, of things that are blatantly stereotypical uh, racial issues. So I would say George Lucas should have just taken his time more and developed actual characters rather than falling back on some kind of yep. stereotypical racial shorthand. It is incredibly uncomfortable. It would be a 100% improvement if we could get rid of that. Well, I mean, for God's sake, you're in outer space in a galaxy far, far away. You're dealing with aliens. You have complete liberty to create believable characters with their own dialect, with their own accents, with so much stuff. And, and then you regress to something like this is just really inexcusable, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that assessment. All right, Dave, what is your third and final point of the big three before we get to the lightning round? So I have no idea if somebody's ever suggested this before, but I have not seen it suggested before. And I think this would actually be an interesting um, switch up. I think Owen Lars should be in this movie. Now, for uh, our audience uh, members who may not be familiar, Owen Lars is uh, Uncle Owen, the guy who raised Uncle Owen, who raised Luke Skywalker, <laughs> and so he he appears very very briefly in um, Attack of the Clones, and then very briefly again appears at the end of Episode Three, but he's not really a character. And so when we meet him again in episode four, it just feels weird that he has this strong dislike of of old Ben and and that Luke shouldn't be like his father. And where is all this stuff coming from? And I think there's a real missed opportunity here. So if we erase Qui-Gon Jinn from the movie, as I said earlier, we still need somebody who travels with Obi-Wan. Somebody who's a sounding board, somebody who he can have dialogue with in the early goings of the movie, and who fights with him when things go sideways. And I think that should be Owen Lars. Let's say he's a young, idealistic pilot from Tatooine. He is uh, in the Republic military. Let's say Obi-Wan doesn't enjoy flying very much. That's something that keeps you know, like being hinted at here and there in the early goings, and especially in some of the books. So here he's not yet a pilot. Lars is his pilot. The Republic has sent him as the pilot to you know, take him to the negotiations and to basically be his official Republic escort. And then let's just build a relationship between these two. Watch it over the course of three movies and slowly watch it sour. We can learn why Obi-Wan would entrust Owen with Luke eventually to begin with. And why there is so much antagonism coming from Owen Lars towards Obi-Wan in episode 4. He can also be a really good audience surrogate, asking questions of Obi-Wan about the Jedi and their ways, things that the audience may not be completely clear on since we're looking at a very different era of Jedi here. And... You know, having kind of a friendship between him and, and, and Obi-Wan, and maybe even with him and Anakin, and then everything goes sideways later in episode two and three, and maybe Lars blames um, blames Obi-Wan a little bit for what's happened to Anakin, and there's kind of, you know, yes, he was a friend, and Obi-Wan trusts him, and that's why he gave Luke to him, but at the same time, there's an animosity between them because Owen Lars blames Obi-Wan for what happened, 
And, and Obi-Wan doesn't argue with that because he blames himself for what happened too. So I think there's a, a really interesting background there for a character that it was just not utilized in any way, shape, or form. It's just this dangling plot thread. What, what in the world was Owen Lars's problem in A New Hope? And having him here as a character, even sort of a, a minor character, I think would go a long way to, to fixing that particular problem. Thoughts, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they had, what, 20 years to little under 20 years to make this film and you know all the time they didn't use it in developing original characters as we talked in the previous point so why would you not like try to find some better connective tissue between three and four like if this was your big overarching plan and i i think um you know it falls along the same lines of of one of the major problems with the sequel trilogy especially with the way that it ended in episode nine is just like you can tell that there's no clear plan when you've got 15 to 20 years to plan for this big return to star wars why would you not something want something like that you know if you're gonna you know die on a hill of midichlorians which we'll get to in my next point then why in the world would you not like do something as simple as like character work here like one cameo is not going to suffice for this cranky old man in episode four that was one character I would have liked to see more of. I would like to have known why he was the way he was. And for the fact that Lucas had a tendency here and there to over-explain some stuff, like, oh, uh, R2-D2 has, you know, jetpack, and why does he not later, and, and that kind of thing. Like, that's so minor. Let's focus on character. Let's focus on relationships and interactions. Much more interesting to watch than little technical minutia. So, Chris, what is your last big point to fix Phantom Menace? Uh, well, I hinted at it uh, just a few seconds ago, and it's the midichlorian mess um, slash the immaculate conception. There was no father. That's just one throwaway line, and we're supposed to be okay with that. Um, so, I mean, it's pretty heavy-handed with the, the Virgin Mary vibes and this messianic character and Anakin. He's, he's Christ-like um, because he had no earthly father. Um, and then... You know, you just open up this unnecessary can of worms, especially it, it, it feels like they're talking out of two sides of their mouth. I feel like a lot of the problems that come with big properties like Star Wars, um, particularly with the prequels, is they're like trying to sell toys. So like here's Darth Maul because he looks cool and you can sell action figures. But then at the same time, you're wanting to sit these seven and eight year olds down and discuss midichlorians. Like, as their eyes glaze over and they just can't wait for the credits to roll. So it's just really questionable. Uh, as I said, you're not going to talk about why Owen Lars is angry in episode four with old Ben. But we're going to definitely discuss midichlorians and a bunch of stuff that, you know, half of our audience isn't going to understand. And you're going to require uh, numerous articles to come out. Um, and then a bunch of fan theories about how Palpatine impregnated Shmi. Um, or, you know, whatever the wild stuff the internet can get to. So if you, why do you have to do that? Like, why do we even have to go down there? Why can he have a father and he was killed by the huts or due to gambling debt or something like that? It doesn't have to be this immaculate conception type deal. You're a little heavy handed with the Messiah complex here. What do you think? I, I, I totally agree with you. And it's kind of creepy too, to think about poor Shmi Skywalker being impregnated by microscopic organisms. It's, it's just, 
bizarre and, and, and odd thinking. And I understand the idea of, oh, he's really the child of the Force, and there's this, you know, he's meant for great things, blah, blah, blah. It's just, it doesn't work. Uh, it's it's odd. Uh, it just doesn't work in the context of this movie. But ultimately, the Metachlorians, uh, even like as a blood test to figure out if somebody's Force-sensitive, was just absolute silliness. In, in that the Force was always portrayed as something deeply spiritual. And now you're trying to scientifically explain spirituality. And the two things, really, science has nothing to say about, about spirituality, because it is outside of the realm of things that can be scientifically proven. So you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. I mean, that's what faith ultimately is. It's, you know belief in the absence of proof and so now you're trying to scientific scientifically explain the force and that takes that deep spirituality away from the jedi i mean we always kind of compared them to, to basically space samurai you know with with a healthy undertone of, of of buddhism you shouldn't introduce basically space bacteria that makes you spiritual in, into your story. It just overcomplicates and, and really takes away something quite nice in this, which is that Star Wars has a spiritual component, which I would argue oftentimes much of Star Trek, for example, does not have. It's much more straightforward science fiction. Yep. And so adding this spiritual component to Star Wars always made it um, unique in a lot of popular science fiction. And then for George to basically try to just explain that away with a quick blood test, it's just regrettable. It, it lessens Star Wars. It doesn't add anything to it. And I think we can easily see that because the Metachlorian thing is dropped from here on out and really never much brought up again because it doesn't add anything to Star Wars. It, it's superfluous. Yep, so that wraps up our uh, big three each. Now we're headed to the lightning round. So, Dave, what's first in the lightning round for you? First in the lightning round. Uh, can we stop calling Anakin Annie? It's supposed to be cute and innocent, and it's an attempt to contrast him with what he will eventually become, but it all just makes me think of a musical. It's a hard knock life for Annie <laughs> on Tatooine, apparently. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, yeah, I even, I even said that that was a possible title. Uh, orphan Annie, it's it's a hard knock life, you know. I mean, like it's just ridiculous, and and this refers back to our previous point. If you age him up, then you don't have this helpless little uh, little baby child that you have to make his sandwiches. So yeah, it's yeah, this this is not like a protagonist that I really want to get behind. Is this little kid? Like I feel like I've got to you know keep an eye on him at all times. Like I don't see that as like a main protagonist. Yes, exactly. What is your first point for the lightning round? Uh, we hinted at it before, but I moved it down to my lightning round when I saw your point. I need more Obi-Wan. Ewan McGregor is one of the most talented actors in the biz, and I need more Obi-Wan. What you think? I totally, totally agree. Uh, Obi-Wan, Ewan McGregor is the man who carried this trilogy. Uh, and in the later movies, the quality goes up in large part because of his performance. So the more we can get him in episode one, the better the movie would be by far. All right, Dave, what's number two in the lightning round? Anakin should not build C-3PO. It's just it's just a, a silly tie-in, and it makes the, the galaxy seem so small because everything just converges on this one point. Uh, instead, 
it would be better if, if he has to be there at all, which I would argue he probably doesn't have to be there. But if C-3PO has to be there at all, then he should maybe be the protocol droid that's sent with Obi-Wan to help him negotiate with the Trade Federation. Boom. Problem solved. You want to make something out of it? You can always say, oh, he's fresh off the uh, assembly line. It's really weird that, you know, there must be a problem in the assembly that he is so uh, oddly scared of everything. Problem solved. Right. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the the mandated inclusion of the droids in the prequels makes for some really unnecessary problems in the original trilogy, which, you know, original trilogy is great. You don't need to further complicate it. You know, um, if Anakin created C-3PO, how in the heck does he not recognize him in episode four as Darth Vader? And I know they threw in episode three a memory wipe for C-3PO, but not for R2. So R2 should know all this stuff. Exactly. And he and R2, he and R2 were inseparable during the prequels, you know, and Clone Wars. So, like, how does he not recognize him? So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Very, very odd. What is your next point for the lightning round? We briefly hinted at it in the big three. Um, and I pulled this quote from the first Harry Potter film and, and book. Uh, sheer dumb luck. Harry and Ron and Hermione are able to defeat a mountain troll by sheer dumb luck, according to Professor Minerva McGonagall. And that happens so much in this film as well. But, you know, it's one thing as um, Harry and Ron's real first encounter with something magical as far as a difficulty, as far as a trial. It's very early on in the film and book. It should not be the final climax of the film. What happened to all the droids? Oh, Annie accidentally shot down the control center. What? That should not be your, you know, heat, thermal exhaust port a la New Hope is, oops, did I do that? This Urkel moment. Um. So yeah, sheer dumb luck has no place. If it is in this film, it should not be like at the climax of the film. What do you think? I totally agree with that. And I will say that it comes back to what I said earlier about agency. It seems like nobody in this movie really has control over their own destiny. Everybody's just a plot device, uh, including Anakin's sheer dumb luck. Uh, much more interesting when people make actual choices, um, which is sorely lacking in this movie in a lot of ways. I will say that. That popped into my brain because I was watching episode one as my wife was sitting next to me watching uh, Sorcerer's Stone. So it was it was all happening. The universe was playing tricks on my mind. Uh, Dave, what is next in the lightning round for you? So actually, I'm going to just latch onto this control ship thing for a second. Anakin should not fly up to destroy the control ship in the final battle. Anakin has already proved his piloting skills, which we know is important because in A New Hope, Obi-Wan says he was a great pilot. You, you already had the pod race. You don't need another flying scene for him to prove how good of a pilot he is. He should be with Obi-Wan. So now, if we really re remove Qui-Gon, then you have Obi-Wan versus Maul at the end with Anakin right there. And Anakin is not a Jedi, but is trying to help. Much more interesting to watch that kind of battle. Send Owen Lars up there to do the whole space battle thing. Yeah. So just seeing Anakin, you know, this, this very sort of almost arrogant teenager who thinks he knows everything trying to go up against Darth Maul and getting the floor wiped with him might even explain to some extent why he then decides I want that power for myself so I'll never feel powerless again um so removing him was a mistake I think what do you think 
Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think it would be great to kind of even have him start a play with his force sensitivity rather than just, you know, playing iPad with, with uh, the Jedi Council, uh, a ship and a cup. Like, that does nothing for me. So, uh, yeah, totally there. So what's your next thing, Chris? I say beef up the B-1 battle droids. They are nothing more than lightsaber fodder. Uh, I mean, the B-2 battle droids are okay. The droidicos are cool. But the B-1 battle droids, that whole roger, roger, like, I'm not here for it. Like, I don't, that is not a believable, uh, quote, unquote, not even a villain. It's not even, I, I don't even want to use the word villain. I don't know what it is. But the B-1s are trash. What do you think? I totally agree with that. You can absolutely tell that George Lucas wanted to be able to show in episode one how awesome Jedis were with their lightsaber, but he didn't want to have them mow down a whole bunch of human beings. <laughs> so he, so here's some robots. Just go ahead and chop those into pieces. But you're exactly right. They're not a threat in any way, shape, or form, and it makes you wonder how the Trade Federation is in any way, shape, or form a threat when those are the, the their soldiers, basically. Uh, as as threatening as playing putt-putt, if you ask me. Yeah, even make them all just B2s. Like, I believe that. Why are they these skinny, anorexic-looking, lanky guys? But the B2s I buy, you know, they're somewhat formidable, but the B1s, these little wimpy guys? No, sorry. But, uh, Dave, what's next for the lightning round for you? I, I just had to say it. Can we try to maybe not have Jar Jar Binks be a, a comic relief? Because clearly George Lucas is not very good at writing comic relief. The slapstick stuff of Jar Jar stepping into poop is not funny. It doesn't add anything to the movie. You can have a Jar Jar Binks, no problem. Uh, you're going to have to change him up, though, a little bit. And that, that slapstick stuff, it's, it's just not funny. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and knock two out with one here. It's one of my next points. Jar Jar's failing upwards is just inexcusable throughout the prequels. He goes from being banished from Gungan City to a general in the army to kicking around explosive materials to getting his foot caught in the reins of whatever they were riding on, whatever that alien animal is. Um, and then all of a sudden he's a senator like what is this so this slapstick strategy i'm not buying it george sorry all right dave what's next in the lightning round focus on relationships um that's really what it comes down to almost every single thing that i thought when i was watching phantom menace is new hope was awesome with relationships it was just great and it brought these three characters together luke Han and Leia, who had this interplay that was fascinating to watch, interesting to see them bounce off of each other. In watching them come together and over the course of the movies basically become a family was, was great. Let's do something like that. Instead of having the plot move the characters around, let's yeah. have the characters move the plot forward. Let's have those relationships. Let's have a great, strong friendship building between, between Obi-Wan and, and, and Anakin. Let's have a flirtatious relationship between Anakin and Padme right out of the get-go. It, it build a relationship. What do you think? Yeah, I totally, I, I buy that. I, I, you know, we talked about the Michael Bay Ninja Turtle films and how regrettable they were. One of the few things that I just, like, guffawed, laughed out loud with was Michelangelo's banter with April. Like, he was hitting on her 
from the jump. And if you have something like that, you know, of course, in different language, being in a galaxy far, far away, I think that would be totally fun. And, and we talked about how Star Wars as a property heavily relies on these animated series that came years, years later trying to fix all the problems of the prequels. You know, uh, the, the ultimate turn in episode three of Anakin is more powerful after watching the Clone Wars. Um, if you would have done all of that in the first place, we wouldn't have to go and correct all the mistakes with the whiteout that is th- these animated series. You know, my personal favorite Star Wars character is Ahsoka Tano. Like, but I had to, and I just found these animated series within the last year. I just got into them and binged them all. Um, but you, you have such a fantastic character, such a strong character, um, in such a minor, minor role. I'm excited to see her in the Mandalorian season two, but, um, I feel like it was such a lost point in, in the prequel films. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What is your last lightning round change, Chris? Yep, I'm going, I'm combining two here. Uh, number one, no one is buying Palpy's BS. Like, how do you not realize who Darth Sidious is? Because he pulled his hood over his head and he contorted his voice a little bit. Like, who is buying that? And that leads into the next one. The Jedi come across as absolute buffoons. Not just this film, but the entire trilogy. The Jedi Council is a collection of idiots, in my opinion. At least that's the way that they are portrayed. Oh, man, I don't know. Could the Sith be back? Like, what? Come on. It's right there in front of you. I don't get it. It just infuriates me to no end. We have gone, you know, from the original trilogy, we thought that the Jedi were these upstanding citizens of the galactic society, and now you're giving me this as, like, they're just absolute idiots. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Uh, to, to your first point uh, with Darth Sidious, I don't, think even, I don't think we should see him in this movie. I think every Darth Sidious scene should have been Darth Maul. Yeah. And he, and he, he should hint that he has a master. But we shouldn't see him. It would be much more interesting for a big reveal in, in episode 2 when we actually see him. And it's like, oh, oh crap, Darth Sidious is the Emperor. That those are the same person. Because yeah. we have Palpatine in the movie and we all know Palpatine is the Emperor. Well, we don't know who Darth Sidious is. It would be really interesting to just leave him off screen, have him hinted at, and then reveal him later on. It's like, oh, 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 now I understand what's going on here. Much more interesting. To the second point, I'm going to go Extended Universe for a second. Uh, in Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire book, there's a wonderful scene where uh, Luke is basically like in a, in a cantina, uh, and he's waiting f- to meet with somebody. And there is a dispute between these two people, and it's getting ready to get violent. So they turn to him, the Jedi, to resolve the dispute. And he's very unsure of himself because he's never done something like that before, but he does it. And he, he really manages to do this because there's a deep respect still among people for the role Jedi played in keeping the peace. And they're not really described as soldiers or, or generals of clones. They're these more like 
in line with what we what we said earlier. So the, the, samurai, the samurai, right? The, pe- yep. the people who travel around and they fight when they have to to protect the innocent, but they also, you know, they go further than that. There's a spirituality to them, and they 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 step up and and help people and resolve conflicts and disputes. And they're never shown as that in the prequel trilogy. They're they're basically the uh, a military arm of the Republic. Uh, they're all generals and they're all leading troops and that i think is is a horribly sad missed opportunity in the prequel trilogy period yep so we did our best and and you know that's that's saying a lot uh for trying to fix the phantom menace so over the next couple of weeks we will look at attack of the clones which you know here's my hot take is even worse than the phantom menace in my opinion sand chris sand sand it gets Ah! everywhere yeah, so um, I am not looking forward to episode two, but then we'll get to episode three, which does have some merit, if I remember correctly. Um, so that'll be the next couple of weeks. But when we come back from this, uh, our final break, we will have our weekly nerd commendations for you. All right, we are back for our final segment, our nerd commendations for yet another week. Dave, what you got? I've got a series from DC Comics called Grayson. Uh, Going right back to our friend Dick Grayson from our nerd news segment. Grayson was primarily written by Tom King and Tim Seeley uh, with art by Michael Jenin. Basically, this is taking the Dick Grayson character and putting him in a completely different setting. In the lead-up to the series, Dick Grayson has been unmasked and killed, but he's not actually dead. Uh, It's a faked death. Instead, he's been recruited into the spy organization Spiral. And not only is he now working as a spy, on top of that, he's a double agent. He's actually still working with Batman because Spiral has been gathering the secret identities of all superheroes. So, Grayson is his adventures... Uh, in the spy organization Spiral, both working for Spiral and working against Spiral at the same time. Uh, The book ran for about 20 issues, had a couple of annuals, and it's just so much fun. Dick Grayson is his best self in the series. He he kind of merges the Nightwing fighting style with the funny quibs of Robin. Uh, There's a great relationship building in the series. There's a reinvented Helena Bertinelli, who uh, was Huntress for a good chunk of time in the comic books. Here, uh, she's his spy partner, and eventually later on, when she gets a promotion, his boss. It's just a fun fun series. The only disappointing part of the book is the end game, when things have to be wrapped up in time for DC's rebirth. It kind of devolves into the typical supervillain tries to conquer the world plot rather than being this really cool spy thriller. Uh, the journey there though, however, is some of the some of the finest uh, writing I've seen in a DC comic. It's fantastic. The art is really distinctive. It captures a great look for Dick Grayson. His face in particular is really distinctive. It never feels generic in the series, even when he's placed among people with, you know, the same hair color and similar hairstyles. Um, it's it's very distinctive. It's very Dick Grayson. The whole thing is available in, available in an omnibus. It's called the, uh, Grayson the Super Spy Omnibus. Got all 20 issues, the annuals, and a one-shot in there. Um, and it's really a fun, 
fun read. It completely flew under my radar at the time that it was being released. My instinct was, uh, I really like Nightwing and now they're gonna take him out of the suit and make him a spy. I don't think this is for me. But picking up the omnibus and reading, I would say it's a fantastic series. All right. Um, so this is kind of funny. Um, this morning you texted me and you said you had changed your news story. And based on this nerd commendation, the question I had written, I was like, what are your thoughts on Dan DiDeo's criti- uh, the criticism of Dan DiDeo for hating Dick Grayson and Wally West? And that turned out to be your nerd news story. So I guess I'll amend my question is, how do you think his thought process, which we, you know, definitely examined in our nerd news segment, how do you think that kind of influences this story, if at all? I, I don't think it really does. I, I think this is one of those stories that just proves how versatile Dick Grayson is as a character. You know, he's been he's been Robin, he's been Nightwing, he's been Batman. And in fact, I will I will go so far as to say his era as Batman with Damian Wayne as Robin, uh, written by Grant Morrison for a good chunk, is fantastic as well. Dick Grayson is a, a very interesting character, and you can do so many things with him, which is why I totally reject Dan Didio's philosophy that he is, you know, not uh, a character that you can do a lot with. I think this series in particular just shows how versatile the character really is. So, Chris, what is your nerd commendation for this week? I know that we usually like to go for deep cuts here and things that are kind of flying under people's radar. The selection that I have for this week is has been well critically acclaimed and everything but i don't see far enough love for it so i'm giving it another shout out and i'm going with jason aaron's thor you can choose how much you want to read it goes um all the way from 2012 up until just finish up this year in 2020 so you've got seven or eight years worth of just fantastic comics that does not even take one issue off uh in quality some of the best written stuff that i've ever read Trevor Von Oz has a great reading order on howtolovecomics.com, and I can post that on our social media, uh, the hyperlink for that. It ultimately builds up to War of the Realms um, last year's crossover, and it's one of the best crossover events that I've ever read in an age where things like that can be truly insufferable. I I would put it up there with Jonathan Hickman's 2015 Secret Wars is probably my favorite crossovers that I've ever read. It's just fun, and it leads into what it is. What do you love about Thor, the character? I, I just love when a, a writer truly understands his, his characters that he's writing about. Um, I'm also, I, I received an award. This is how much of a nerd I am. I received an award in the seventh grade for being a, quote, mythology nut. So... I've always been obsessed with Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Norse mythology. So, and this was like a deep dive, like head over heels into North mythology and the intricacy of all the different realms. It packs an emotional punch. Um, Jason Aaron probably gets the most notoriety for his storyline where Jane Foster um, takes over as Thor. She is worthy and takes up the hammer. So that's... um, that's going to be a great read for you that that particular part of the run um, as we head into next year's Thor Love and Thunder. 
with uh, with Natalie Portman returning as Jane Foster, and she lifted the hammer during Comic Con. So I'm assuming that she's gonna be worthy here. Um, and and there was you know typical toxic fanboy you know reception there. But this is not just checking off a box for diversity or you know oh it's a woman you know you know doing this that or this or that checking a box it's a real human story it deals with grief it deals with loss it deals with what it's like to live with cancer and it just you get teary-eyed at the end of every issue throughout that run um and and the thing that i really appreciate is not just a strong jane foster story also odin's son thor as we know him um from mass media is the central theme of worthiness that you saw in um, Avengers Endgame that's pulled from this run. Um, he's got daddy issues. He never feels like he measures up and he feels like he's good enough to be the son of Odin. Um, Odin is a huge jerk throughout most of this run, but then you also see Odin's character development and him realizing how screwed up he has been at times. Um, and then alongside Jason Aaron's writing, you've got some just gorgeous art. Um, you have a, a, a wealth of artists. Um, you know, it's seven or eight years worth of comics. I could not possibly list, but the two of my favorites um, where it started with Asad Ribich, um, you know him from 2015 Secret Wars. Um, what I love about his art is it's like a painting and it's at times haunting and it's perfect for this setting, especially they do some jumping around with, with, with time um, and, and Thor through the ages and particularly the medieval Thor the god of the Vikings oh man his his art is just picture perfect for that time era and then oh one of my favorite artists of all time and Russell Dodderman, um and the sheer spectacle of his art his work on, on War of the Realms is just majestic um, there's a particular splash page where Odin comes in with the Valkyries and it just is jaw-droppingly gorgeous. So I can't say enough about Jason Aaron's Thor. I read the entire run in a couple of months. Um, it's all on Marvel Unlimited. It ends, like I said, it just ended a couple of months ago with um, King Thor. And that just wrapped up a couple of months ago. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that the final issue of King Thor just got added to Marvel Unlimited within like the last week. So all of this is all on Marvel Unlimited. You can find trades everywhere, but I cannot recommend this stuff enough. And I am totally biased because Thor is my doppelganger. So I don't have much to add to that. It's a very strong recommendation. And we've talked about Jason Aaron's run uh, before um, off the air, so to speak. Um, and it's definitely on my list of things that I still want to read. But I, I can't add much to this because I just haven't read any of this run. Uh, my last Thor run was actually uh, J. Michael Straczynski. Uh, which I really enjoyed, and I'm a big fan of the Thor character. I just haven't gotten around to uh, to reading any more uh, Thor so far, so I'll definitely give this a read eventually. It's just one of my problems that I have with Marvel. It's very, very uh, difficult to find the perfect jumping-on point. But you said, hey, when, when Jason Aaron takes over, jump in, so that's what I'm going to try to do. Yeah, this starts off, and again, I'll, I'll share out that link on howtolovecomics.com from Trevor Von Oss, but um, you'll, it starts with... Um, Thor God of Thunder in 2012. So that's the jumping on point. Thor God of Thunder 2012. And I'll say this, even if you just read those 25 issues of Thor God of Thunder, it's wonderful. So you'll you'll be happy with even just that. And, and the Assad Ribich art will just knock your socks off every time. 
All right, fantastic. Well, that is it for this week's episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, tuning in for our fifth episode. Uh, we have a lot of interesting things planned in the future, so be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Keep uh, spreading the word uh, to other like-minded nerds, and we are looking forward to bringing you another episode next week. Chris? Yeah, absolutely. So, again, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord. Um, you can find us both individually on Twitter at ThatNerdDave and at ThatNerdChris. Um, you can reach our email for questions, comments, criticisms, uh, ideas for future episodes, uh, NerdByWord at gmail.com. You can also find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or our webisode, or excuse me, or our website, nerdbyword.com. Stay well, stay nerdy. The Nerd By Word is produced by two nerds, Chris and Dave, to encompass all aspects of the nerd multiverse. The theme music was written by Al Jimenez. Our show art features original art by Ashri Design, as well as public domain comic panels. Find us online at nerdbyword.com on Twitter at NerdByWord, and send questions and comments to nerdbyword at gmail.com.